Good morning. Uh, so I should put this book on the top there, or maybe on the bottom. I'm not sure. Uh, but there are um, many things that I could say this morning about baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I honestly have way more thoughts in my head than I have time to share or maybe even the ability to share. So these, these books, um, I really like my books. I'm sorry if you don't like books. I like these books. I have other books that I have uh, been reading in. But uh, this one here is uh, Pilgrim Marpeck's writings. Uh, I've been reading in that. I'm not going to. Uh, Hubmeyer's writings. Uh, and uh, this this book is um, Pilgrim Marpeck's, uh, the more recent book, Christ in Our Midst. It's on the Lord's Supper. But a broader um, discusses. Uh, his understanding of how Christ is present with his people in general, and especially in baptism and the Lord's Supper. And uh, this, this book, uh, the title is Anabaptist Baptism, uh, which I haven't looked in uh, much recently, but I was looking at it um, past week, and uh, I noticed that I have marked it up, and, and I also noticed that it has a chapter on Pilgrim Marpeck, which I had not remembered, which I read. And uh, then, um, to use Leon's term, uh, in relation to something I wrote. So this book is a tome, T-O-M-E. <laughs> Obviously it is. You see how big it is. Uh, <clears throat> it covers everything there is to cover. <laughs> I think it misses nothing on every type of Anabaptist and every issue, it is an exhaustive work and exhausting. And um, I am sure it was not written by one person. I think it was written by a uh, professor and many of his students over the years. Uh, and it has words in it that I struggle to understand. So, I like this book, but I don't like it, okay? But there's a lot of, there's a lot of things in these books that help, help me understand Scripture and uh, ways to think about it. So, I'm beginning with baptism here this morning, and I want to talk about uh, 
about the different views of baptism in the 16th century. And I, I hope this is not just a lecture uh, or even maybe a sermon, but uh, something that, that we can think about what has been and what is and what does the Bible teach. And I think it's helpful sometimes to, to think through issues again. Uh, doesn't mean we'll come to any different conclusion, but I think it's healthy to think through issues. Now, I'll say this, that, that the, the questions about the meaning of baptism and the Lord's Supper touch on some important questions that probably most of us don't think about too much. Some of us think about these questions a lot. I do. It's questions like, in what sense and by what means or method is God present in the world uh, today? In what sense and by what means or methods is he present? In what sense in the world? In what sense and in what, by what means is he present inside people? In what sense and by what means is he present uh, in ceremonies and symbols like water and bread and juice? Uh, another question is, uh, what is the relationship between the person of Jesus and, and ceremonies like baptism and the Lord's Supper? In, in what sense, who Jesus is as a divine and human, how, how, how is that communicated uh, to people in conversion? and in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. It's questions like this that um, honest people have struggled with and tried to understand. And, and actually, you might be sitting there right now thinking this, this guy up here is crazy and whatever. Uh, but actually, those, those are the kinds of questions that influence conclusions in the 16th century, the different views that were held. It was those kinds of questions. And, and the, the people's understanding of what the Bible teaches about those kinds of questions. So let's start here with uh, baptism. So with baptism, uh, I think I want to start by saying that in the 16th century, in the 1500s, uh, Civil government viewed infant baptism as, as the act by which a person became a member of society. If a child was baptized as an infant, that made them a member of society 
and any member of the church, Catholic Church, since they were both one. And and one way, even today, that you can discover uh, where one of your ancestors was born, if you want to, you might go over to Europe and look in the baptismal records in uh, City Hall or whatever it is, and you might find the name of your ancestor listed, uh, his baptism or her baptism. Uh, this, the, there was a record kept of baptisms, and it was it was uh, recorded in, not only for the church but in uh, government. So the uh, the Catholic view, and my outline is on your uh, bulletin. Uh, the Catholic view of baptism was what we call baptismal regeneration. Uh, the view that uh, baptism removes uh, guilt for original sin, the sin of Adam and Eve. Uh, it it uh, took care of all the sins of the past, which how could an infant have any? But uh, that was the doctrine. Uh, it makes a person innocent, and it, it made a person a member of the church and also a member of society. Uh, some of this is going to be very speedy. That's the Catholic view. Martin Luther's view was also infant baptism. And he argued this position from uh, three or four different angles. One was tradition. And he said that God would not permit something wrong to continue for so long. Therefore, it's right. That's one argument. He also argued for infant baptism from his understanding of how to use Scripture. Uh, he said, uh, what God does not will, he speaks against in Scripture. So, what is not forbidden in Scripture directly is allowed. Thinking here, I think the Anabaptist rule of interpretation would have been uh, what is not commanded in Scripture is not allowed. Which I think has some problem too. But uh, we'll talk about that when I talk about Scripture. Uh, so his view of Scripture. He says, if baptism is neither commanded nor condemned, therefore it's allowed. Uh, he argued from his view of the value of faith. And, and some of these arguments, uh, that what I'm, the things I'm saying here, I'm not saying them so that we can uh, laugh at people, whatever. It's just uh, people's ideas about things and... Uh, maybe you agree with them and maybe you don't. 
Are they scriptural is the question, you know. So he argued also from his view of the value of faith. He said uh, sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper, whatever. He said they have value only when they are accompanied by faith. So then he had this problem, do babies have faith? And he said, baby, a baptism gives faith to babies, therefore they have faith. And so he said, faith, not baptism, is what saves. And then he said, whether it's the faith of the child or the faith of the sponsor, that is the parent or guardian, their faith would also be valid for the infant. Um, and then he admitted that he couldn't prove empirically that that infants had faith. So he said that uh, children believe because infant baptism is right. Uh, then Luther gave his arguments uh, against adult baptism. He had several, but I'll give one. He said that um, you could never know for sure if someone is having faith, so even adults, which doesn't seem to agree with his argument about infants having faith. But anyway, he said you can't really determine that uh, that adult that anybody has faith, so you can never be sure that they were saved in their baptism. Anyway, so Zwingli's view of baptism was also infant baptism, but it wasn't the same as Lutheran, it wasn't the same as Catholic. Um, he said that, uh, that grace is not connected to the symbols. Like, the grace isn't present in the water. Uh, Baptism itself does not save. Um, he said it was not for original sin. He said that in baptism, a covenant is formed between the baptized infant and God. But it is not a covenant that's made by the child. It's a covenant that God makes. So in baptism, God is promising to save this person, either there or later. And <clears throat> that view is actually very similar to uh, what became known as the Reformed view which I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but the view that was practiced in New England with the Puritans, um, <clears throat> in which they baptized children, infants, and then when, when these children, some of them, too many, became teenagers and adults, they did not act as believers. And so then the church was in a dilemma 
about what to do with these adults, teenage adult people who had been baptized as infants and were church members and living unholy lives and for <clears throat> for the Reformed people in New England in that day, that, that was terrible. You do not, they, they could not put up with adults living that kind of life, so they had to discipline them somehow. So they created this halfway covenant. That was the uh, technical term for it, in which they allowed these people to remain in society, uh, but they took away from them the privilege of communion and, and participating in certain civil activities. I think maybe one of those was voting. I'm not sure what all they were. But anyway, these are challenges in... Uh, when you have a when you have a theological position about something, and then you know time goes on, and then then things develop, and the, the theological position doesn't work, you know it creates a problem. And I suppose we have our things that are like that too. Um, so the Anabaptist view of baptism. Uh, I'm using primarily uh, Hubmeyer and Marpeck, their statements. Uh, but the things they said, in a general way, summarize pretty much the whole Anabaptist perspective. Uh, I should say, among Anabaptists, there were all kinds, all kinds of beliefs about many things. On the subject of, um, like, non-resistance and baptism and, and the, 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 the extent and manner and means, means by which Jesus can be present. So some of them were what we call spiritualists. Uh, and they didn't believe that, uh, they didn't believe it was necessary to have any uh, symbols. He didn't need baptism, didn't need the Lord's Supper, Christ to be present. Uh, and work apart from any of that. And uh, some of them opposed to that were quite literalistic about various things. So there's a wide range, and I'm not going to talk about the extremes. So Hubmeyer is the first person to write a tract on baptism, and it was written in response to Zwingli's view. And Hubmeyer and Zwingli had discussed uh, baptism, infant baptism. They both mentioned that they had. And uh, this took place uh, sometime during the spring of 1523. And that's almost two years before the first Anabaptist baptisms that took place in January of 
1525. So several weeks prior to the first baptisms in Zurich, Hubmeyer was in another city, pastor of another, in another city, and two weeks before the uh, baptism in Zurich, uh, Hubmeyer had suspended infant baptism in his church. Um, so then these baptisms in Zurich took place in January 1525, and several uh, several months, six months later, uh, in communication, there was communication between Zwingli and Hubmeyer. Uh, Zwingli wrote something, Hubmeyer wrote something, and then Zwingli wrote something in response to Hubmeyer. And then Hubmeyer wrote again in response to Zwingli. And um, these, these writings, um, what I read, I was actually reading this morning. What I read this morning, uh, uh, the comment was that uh, Hubmeyer was more gracious in his responses to Zwingli than Zwingli was to Hubmeyer. I'm just saying that to say these, these men did not spare any, uh, any words, and uh, they said strong things, uh, mean things. Um, I'm not sure that Hubmeyer said mean things, but I think the term I would use, uh, some of the things Wingley said were demeaning. Uh, they were attacking, put-downs, how stupid he is to interpret that that way. Uh, that nobody with, you know, good common sense would think that and stuff like this. Which, of course, we all know that kind of language and approach doesn't really address real issues. Um, so, Hubmeyer's first tract, Defending Adult Believers' Baptism, was published in July of 1525, and his second was published about six months later, at the beginning of 1526. So that, that's about one year after the first baptism, that first, the, the uh, last, uh, the last tract he wrote. So he, he mentions, uh, Hubmeyer mentions most of the various Anabaptist motifs. He argued that Luther was inconsistent in his views and explained why he thought that. And he said that baptism, Hubmeyer said, baptism is an outward sign of an inward experience. And I know you've all heard these words before. He said it's an outward witness to inward faith, the expression that one has a good conscience. In baptism, you are declaring that you have a good conscience. He said baptism is a sign of that the old life of sin has been abandoned and a new life of following Christ has begun. This is what the person is declaring in baptism. And that, that was the reason, because you had to be able to have a good conscience and had to be able to make this uh, declaration with your mouth that you... Uh, Trust in Jesus and intend to follow Him. 
So then that, that was the main reason he thought it needed to be adult, believer's baptism. Uh, he saw also, he, he talked about the, uh, the person being baptized, uh, making a covenant with or a commitment to the people around him, her, uh, making a commitment to participate in what they call the rule of Christ, which is uh, what is talked about in Matthew 18, that you are willing to uh, participate in a conversation with brothers and sisters about uh, how you follow Christ, that you be willing to uh, speak to brothers and sisters if you believe they are not following Christ, and you be willing to let them speak to you if they have questions about how you're following Christ. Um, and that if, if, if the church deems it necessary to discipline you, that you gladly receive that. And now I want to add something here. Um, you know, there, there was a lot of uh, discipline excommunication that has been throughout the centuries that we probably would say is, is over the top, out of hand, not biblical. I've thought things like that about situations I've heard about. Uh, and that may well be true. I wouldn't argue that. I actually believe it is true. But uh, I think it helps, it helps me, it might help to understand that the Anabaptist understanding of the rule of Christ in discipling one another and baptism, in baptism, making that commitment. That was an alternative. That was the, their, that was their alternative to the view that, that if you are not, um, if you are violating some Christian Bible doctrinal position, then you ought to be killed. Okay? That's their alternative to killing people who don't live right or believe right. It's church discipline rather than beheading or burning at the stake. Uh, Hubmeyer also, as was common with Anabaptists, he used Mark 16, 15, and I believe 16 as the formula uh, for baptism. You preach the gospel is preached and someone believes and then uh, they are baptized. So a few things with Mark Peck uh, that, I, that I would add to Hubmeyer. He said that in baptism, okay, uh, Hubmeyer was burned at the stake in, uh, I believe, 1528. So, 1525 to 1528, three years um, of 
Anabaptist thought and writing. Um, Marpet's writings are later. Uh, 1532 was the first major one. 1542 was um, another major one on baptism and the Lord's Supper. And uh, Marpeck, I could tell many stories up here about these people. All of these issues are tied up in stories, but I don't have time for that. Uh, Marpeck died in... uh, 1556, and he is one of the few Anabaptists who died a natural death, one of the few uh, leaders, prominent people, and the reason he lived to die a natural death is he was a civil engineer. He was a trained engineer. And he, he designed, um, he was in charge of the mining operations in the forest and the cutting down of trees uh, everywhere he lived, which he ended up living at three or four different places because he got, uh, he was told that he had to leave or he would be uh, killed. So he was very valuable to the cities and the areas where he lived, and that's why he didn't get killed. So he said, uh, one other thing I should say is that Marpeck, most of his writings, especially after 1532, were written in conjunction with other people. He didn't write these things by himself. There was a team team of people. So he said that in baptism, the Holy Spirit cleanses the heart from sin and gives a clear conscience. He said in baptism, the believer makes a commitment to suffer with Christ. Uh, He also, well, I should back up. First of all, he said that when a person first believes, repents, uh, he experiences regeneration. In baptism, uh, the Holy Spirit is present and and affirms affirms and completes uh, the regeneration process. Although he didn't believe. He felt like regeneration continues throughout life, but he, he believed that baptism with water was necessary for salvation, uh, not that there was saving grace in the water, but uh, the Holy Spirit honored the faith of the person, and something happened in baptism as well as before. Um, so he believed in an inner and outer baptism, uh, regeneration connected to faith and repentance and forgiveness of sins, and that began prior to water baptism, but then there was an outer 
baptism when the person was baptized with water. Um, so according to Marpeck, he said that both inner and outer baptism was necessary for salvation. So I'm just going to say this, that that what what that means is that, that Marpeck was... Um, He, he was promoting the idea that that there is that Christ is present, the Holy Spirit is present, grace is present in water baptism. And it's not just it's not just a uh, declaration of a clear conscience. And um, these are things to ponder, to consider. So the Anabaptist questions were like this. Had infants, in fact, been baptized according to the New Testament? And they said, no. They weren't. They asked the question, should baptism be considered purely testimonial? a declaration that the person has a good conscience, or should it also have some kind of uh, redemptive, be some kind of redemptive action? And some of them said one, some said the other. And as I just described, Mark Peck would have said, well, both are true. Um, modern questions, which I will not, um, try to answer here this morning. Maybe I should, but I won't. The, mar- the modern questions I hear quite a bit are, should baptism happen at conversion or await instruction? And should baptism be connected only to conversion or also to church membership? I've, I've heard those questions. A lot of uh, students at Faith Builders ask these questions. And uh, we talked about issues, but um, there, there are various there are various um, pros and cons in all of those questions. And uh, I'll just say, if we're going to talk about those things, we ought to do it in a members' meeting. Okay, the Lord's Supper. So various views of the meaning of the Lord's Supper in the 16th century are connected to various views of uh, Christology. The, the, uh, the manner in which Christ is both human and divine and the way that is communicated, the means that that is available to humans, uh, either directly or through uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So, uh, the Catholic view of the Lord's Supper is uh, transubstantiation, uh, which is the teaching that grace is conveyed through the bread and wine because the substance of the bread and wine become the body and blood, the, the physical body and blood of Christ. That is the official uh, Roman Catholic view. Uh, Luther's view is uh, called consubstantiation, and he said that Christ is uniquely 
physically present attached to, uh, under, above, around the bread and wine, but the bread and wine are not changed into the body and blood of Christ. So, common in, around, and with. That's Luther's view. Uh, Calvin's view was that Christ is spiritually present. The bread and wine do not become the body and blood. Christ is spiritually present. Uh, Zwingli's view was uh, what became the common Anabaptist view called the memorial view. He, he said that the body of Christ is in heaven and it cannot be on earth. And it can't be present in any sense in the Lord's Supper. To the Anabaptist view uh, was similar to Zwingli, that uh, Christ is not physically present in any way in the bread and wine. Um, but they, they added the idea that that Christ is present in among the people, in the people, among the people, and they emphasize uh, the idea of brotherhood, living together, uh, communing together, communion, uh, foregoing self-will and independent spirit. And we, we are, just as the bread is made up of many grains of wheat and is crushed in order to make bread, uh, the community of believers is made up of many people who are uh, brought together by the Holy Spirit, by the work of Christ. So the idea of... Uh, the emphasis on brotherhood as, as a part of the Lord's Supper. So Marpeck, um, his idea about the Lord's Supper, he rejected the idea that the symbols were literally Christ, or that Christ was physically present. He rejected the idea that they were mere symbols and had no meaning, uh, which was Zwingli's view, and fairly common among Anabaptists. He said that Christ is present spiritually only as the Holy Spirit or divine nature, and that Christ is present spiritually in the people uh, as they participate in partaking of the Lord's Supper. So, I want to give a summary here. Um, so, Anabaptists viewed uh, baptism and communion as the primary um, actions or ceremonies of the church that determined whether a uh, church was a true church. Um, 
In their view, baptism, Anabaptists required that faith and repentance precede baptism. They said that baptism symbolizes and affirms that the person has been regenerated, symbolizes that the person has or is dying and rising with Christ, and is surrendering himself, herself to to Christ and his church. Uh, in their view of the Lord's Supper, Anabaptists rejected the idea that Christ is physically present in the bread and wine, while at the same time they tried to affirm that Christ is present and active in the people and in the community. Um, so, you, you may wonder, I don't know if you wonder about my sanity or not, but I'll, I'll just confess that I, I spend a fair amount of time thinking about these kinds of issues these days. Uh, I thought maybe... I thought maybe by the time I got this old, I would have figured all this out and quit thinking about these things, and I would be. Um, maybe, maybe I just enjoy thinking about these kinds of things. I don't know. but um, I believe it is important for us to uh, consider the meaning of Christ's past work, and not just one time, but... Uh, as life goes on, church life goes on. Consider the meaning of Christ's past work in the world and his present work and presence in in, this, in people's lives and in, in the in the life of the church. And uh, maybe these kind of conversations can stir us up. Thank you.